and I get, I mean, I work with clients all the time who are like, I don't want to sell my nice car. I don't want to move to another place to live. And it's like, that's fine. That just means you're not going to get results as quickly as I did, which is fair and is, you know, totally okay. As long as you are doing something to work towards being able to pay more into that debt, that's all that really matters. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Gen Z Money Podcast, where we turn financial peace to your reality. I'm your host, James Bowman, and today I bring on an amazing guest. Oh, my goodness. Me and Larissa, we have such a great conversation, and we really get down to the behavioral aspects of money. You know, there's a saying that for personal finances, 90% behavior and 10% head knowledge. And so we really dive into that 90% and we go over why people do spendings, how to approach people who are being, who are financially literate without attacking them or belittling them or, and getting people to change their mind and open up their mind to this whole personal finance space and creating generational wealth. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation because we go much deeper than I think I've ever gone with any guests on the podcast. So I don't want to give away too much, but I really hope you guys enjoy it. And I really hope you guys get a lot of information from this interview. But let's go ahead and jump right in with Larissa. Before we get into the interview, let's hear a quick word from today's show sponsors. Larissa, welcome to the Gen Z Money Podcast. How are you doing on this fabulous day? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing phenomenal. I really appreciate you coming on to not only share your money story, how you've gotten to where you are now, but also all the tips you've learned throughout the way that you've been able to help other people uh, replicate your findings. Yeah, no, I'm excited to share some tips and to tell my story and to hopefully help a couple people out. Yeah, you might, you know, you might help a couple, <laughs> one or two of them. So for those who do not know, you are Larissa Stephan. You're an accredited behavioral financial professional, wealth management specialist, virtual financial advisor, and basically a money coach. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. That's me. Okay. We're going to dive into those because I have a <laughs> lot of questions about some of that. But before we do, I like to let the audience kind of get to know the guests and where they started and how they've gotten to where they are. So Larissa, let's start with your background. How was money talked about and viewed as you grew up? Um, so it was definitely talked about, but it was always, my parents definitely have more of a scarcity mindset. So it was always um, a place of conflict and something that was always worried about. So I definitely picked up on the fact that Money was something to consistently be worried about and to feel like there was never going to be enough. So that was something I had to train myself to really get out of. Gotcha. And, you know, that's very it's very common, especially in the United States where, you know, most people are working and lower class. Therefore, mm -hmm. money is seen as uh, transactory. It's not really created. You know, you trade it with things. And so getting out of that scarcity mindset is definitely one of the first steps to help people realize, like, listen, you don't have to just trade your time for money, but you're able to create wealth as you go. 
So how, so, okay. Money was scarce in your household and it wasn't discussed too positively. Where did your money story even begin to where you were like, wait a minute, hold on. This stuff can do amazing things. Where did that start? So actually wild enough. So I remember the 2008 recession. Um, I grew up lower middle class and my parents actually started a company in 2014 and it has been extremely successful. So they were able to start that and build wealth for themselves. But even with starting that, having all that money, they're still in a bit of a scarcity mindset and a, this isn't going to last forever. This could go away at any time. So that's when I really started to kind of see that the way that they were acting had nothing to do with the fact that they were lower middle class and it had a lot to do just with their own psychology and their own mindset. So that was where I really started to pay attention to what was actually happening. I also, my husband and I got in quite a bit of debt back when we were living in San Francisco. So I have my own little debt story that I had to deal with as well. Okay. Well, first of all, <laughs> San Francisco, I think that is like, it's one, I think I'm, I'm, I know it's top three most expensive markets mm -hmm. in the United States. Yeah. Um, so let's go into that debt story. <laughs> girl, you know, I love me some debt stuff. I love, <laughs> I love debt payoff. Sir. So where did that debt journey with you and your husband begin? Yeah. So we moved out in the San Francisco Bay Area. We lived like an hour outside of San Francisco, but anyone who knows San Francisco knows the entire area for like quite a while is very expensive. So we moved out, we got in our apartment and we were just living our lives and, you know, things come up and we were using credit cards. And then we both kind of got to a point where we were like so buried in debt. We weren't really sure where it was going to go from there. So we weren't paying attention to it for two to three years. We really let it just rack up. We got to $60,000 in consumer debt, which I was absolutely appalled by. I could not believe the bank even allowed that to happen. Now that I realize how banks really work, now I know how it happened, right? But I could not believe that the bank would actually let me do that and let me get that buried in debt and expect me to be able to pay it back. So we went like full cold turkey, like cut everything off we didn't need, got on other people's Netflix accounts. We ate Top Ramen, Hot Pockets. Like we went real cheap because we were ready to buy a house. We wanted to move out of California. We wanted to buy a house. And so that's not happening with $60,000 in consumer debt. So we went ahead and started eliminating that. We had nicer cars that we ended up selling so that we didn't have to make those car payments and really made like full lifestyle changes at that point. Okay. So- Okay, so you guys go to buy a house and you realize, like, wait a minute, nobody's going to loan to me when I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. Right. So you talk about doing something that I personally don't believe most people are willing to do. Most people are not willing to go on a top ramen diet. Most people are not willing to sell their cars and downgrade. So let's focus on that for a second, because I think it's very relatable to think, to be able to see, okay, I have over uh, $50,000 in debt. I need to make a change. I want to be able to buy a house because I know that is very, very important to control your life. So how did you come to this epiphany? Like if we're going to get out of this mountain of debt, we have to make drastic changes because those are very drastic changes. Yeah. 
It definitely, it was less of an epiphany and more over time. So we definitely cut back our spending first while still driving the nice cars. And then I got rid of my car about three months into the process. So it wasn't all at once. I got rid of my car. Um, I was working from home with the 2020 pandemic. So that really helped out as well. We didn't have to pay for gas, those kinds of things. My husband kept his car. We both had brand new cars, like $1,200 a month worth of car payments. Absolutely ridiculous. But my husband kept his car up until the point we moved, actually. We actually bought the house with his car. And then once we had the house, we were like, okay, we don't need this car anymore either. And we then downgraded that to an older, like a 2009 sedan is now what we have. Gotcha. So it wasn't, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up that it wasn't like you snapped your fingers and everything was gone, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, I'm going to start here by lowering our grocery budget. Then I'm going to start here by jumping on mom's Netflix account and get rid of Netflix. <laughs> and you gradually made steps down until you got to those bigger sacrifices. But it wasn't just like, snap your fingers, everything's gone. Let's make a change. And, and it's just gone. Yeah, no, yeah. it was definitely an overtime and something that as my mindset really started to shift, started to happen. Like we moved back in with my parents for a couple of months as well so that we could get that last bit of debt paid down because obviously housing is a huge expense. <laughs> Wait a minute, that is another <laughs> sacrifice that people, most people are not going to make. So you're two for right. two. So how long did it take you guys in total to get out of this $60,000 in debt? It was a little over a year. So we did within the time we started to buying our home, that was exactly one year. But we did buy our home with a little bit of that consumer debt left. We still had some on the credit cards, but you know, you can still have some debt when you buy a home. So it wasn't completely eliminated. But within a couple of months of buying our home, which is, I mean, pretty cheap because we live in Idaho, we were able to completely eliminate that. And now we are consumer debt free. And we own a home and we are just, you know, saving, investing, doing all the other things we got to do. Okay, so a big part, we're going to get into it a little bit later, later about the behavioral aspect of things. But I want to speak to people like me, right? There are some very, very prideful people out there, right? Mm -hmm. So let's let's talk to that for a second. Let's talk to those people who have much pride and they're they're not going to sell their BMW and they're not going to move out of the big city to a place like Idaho to get a lower living expense. And they're not going to move in with their parents in order to help that debt payoff journey. So how did you did you was it a hard hurdle to get over that pride aspect or was this something that, you know, it just came very easy to you, the sacrifices? It didn't necessarily come easy, but the thing about the things that I had is it wasn't a pride related thing. I genuinely enjoyed, I had a Jeep Wrangler. I loved it. So I genuinely enjoyed my car. My husband genuinely enjoyed his car. And it wasn't that we liked showing off, like we liked driving them. We liked our lifestyle. So for us, it just wasn't pride. And I get, I mean, I work with clients all the time who are like, I don't want to sell my nice car. I don't want to move to another place to live. And it's like, that's fine. That just means you're not going to get results as quickly as I did, which is fair and is, you know, totally okay. As long as you are doing something to work towards being able to pay more into that debt, that's all that really matters. And some people don't have the option to move back in with their parents. Some people, it's the last thing they'd ever want to do. I do get that like not everyone's story can pan out the way that mine did. I was just willing and able to drop everything. I didn't care about anyone or anything else. I cared about getting that house. I wanted to buy a house. Interest rates were low. I was ready to do it. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that up that although 
everybody doesn't have the option. Everybody doesn't have the option to sell a car because they probably don't have one. Everybody doesn't have an option to move in with their parents. But it's it's really great to speak to those who do have that option because it's that little bit of ego, a little bit of pride <laughs> that people like me. And I'm, I'm going to admit, like, I'm one of those guys that say I'll never move back in with my parents because of the independence and all this thing. But that truly is pride. And another thing you said that's very, very important, it doesn't mean you're not going to be able to get to your goal. It just means you're going to do it slower. It could be a little bit slower. It could be a lot slower. I'm sure if my wife and I moved back in with our parents, we'd reach financial independence <laughs> much, much faster because we'll be saving. But we are not willing to sacrifice that comfort or that luxury of owning your own home, owning your old cars and things like that. So I, li I like that you point that out. It's like, it's not an end all be all, but it is going to slow you down. And essentially you're trading time for comfort and luxury. Right. So, okay. So you guys buy this house. You, first of all, you get out of $60,000 in debt in about a year. You buy your first house. Were you already down the track of this financial independence, financial literacy, financial education route? Or is this something that you picked up along the journey? Yeah, it's definitely something I picked up along the journey. We bought our house and I was financially literate, more or less. I got financial education in high school, so I did understand a little bit. And of course, with my parents owning the company, I got a little bit more involved in what was going on there and how that all worked. But it was I actually bought this house. I, it's so crazy to think back now. Two years ago, I bought this house so that I could start a family, be a stay at home mom actually. And then I got here. I was staying home. I was doing not a whole lot. And I was like, this is really boring. We're in a pretty boring town. I don't know that I want to stay here. And that's when I was like, okay, so I need to make a career change first off. And I need to be more financially literate. And as that happened, I started to get more into the behavioral side because I did start out working as a behavior therapist. So I really got more into that and more into the study of the psychology. And I was just like, you know what? I have experience. I know what I'm talking about. Like I can come out here and help other people. I know I'm not the only one who buried themselves in debt for no good reason. So I can go out there and start helping other people. And it really just kind of happened as time went on and as I changed being out here. Gotcha. So I, I want to jump back for a second because you said something that's super duper important and it's something that's becoming much more prevalent in today's age. You said that your financial literacy journey really started in high school. Can we break that down? Uh, do you remember how that started? Was it like a mandatory class? Did you even retain a lot of stuff from that class or what was that like? So it was actually an elective class. So it went for the entire year. One of our math teachers had decided to teach a financial literacy class. They were very passionate about it. So it was completely elective. So I chose to take it, which means I did retain a lot of it. I I ruined my credit and I got in all that debt knowing how credit worked. I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was supposed to invest in a Roth IRA when I turned 18. I knew all of that. It didn't really matter. It didn't make a difference because at the time I wasn't really thinking far enough forward for it to matter. But I mean, I retained it all. I knew it. I know how to balance a checkbook as not useful as that is now. But right. I know how to do all that. And I knew everything. So it's one of those things where like, I see why they're trying to put it in high schools, but it's also like, not relevant till it's relevant. I think that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I appreciate you being so open about that because it, it's so funny that we know things like 
people who smoke cigarettes, they know it's not good for their health and they do it anyways. People who eat tons of junk food, they know it's not good for their health, but they do it anyways. And it's kind of the same thing when it comes to money. It's like some things we know hurts us financially, but we do it anyways. And so it's very, um, the, the word that comes to mind is accountability. It's very accountable for you to say, listen, I know that this is going to hurt me and I did it anyways, instead of just saying, oh, well, nobody told me so, you know, I'm a victim. So I love that. I love how you're just like, hey, look, I knew it. I knew what I was doing to my credit. And hey, look, I did it anyways because I wanted the nice car or whatever the case was. Yep. And then another thing that you mentioned was getting some financial literacy from your parents' business. Now, mm-hmm. that is something that's very interesting because there are tons of business owners out there. And, you know, I think the dream of a business owner is to have a child who can help understand the business and hopefully one day take over that. So do you remember any of the financial lessons or things you were able to learn through the business with your parents? It was a lot more. I worked more on like the admin side. So I did learn kind of how the financials work. My parents actually, they don't plan on passing it along. They actually plan on selling it. So I wasn't like integrated into the business. I just kind of got to work with it and learn it. I think one of the biggest things though, was that you need to pay well in order to get enough employees in, in order to actually make that profit. So one of the biggest lessons I learned was if you pay well, then you can get more employees, but in, but then you can service more clients. They have like a client-based business as well. So when you service more clients, then you can make more money. So it all just kind of goes back to making sure you're taking care of your people, which I think is the biggest lesson I took from it. It's it's so ironic that you say that because I was watching a video before the interview, which was literally about that. He's like, look, if you pay double the going rate in your area for somebody, you're going to have every single candidate coming to try and work for you. And you can pick the best candidate out of the bunch. When you're paying just the bare minimum, you're going to get the bare minimum candidates who are not going to be as proficient or as knowledgeable in their job. So paying definitely reflects the outcome that you were talking about and the productivity you were just talking about. So that's a I, I think that's a great lesson to learn very early because to be quite frank with you, I kind of learned that today. It's like, wow, that makes total <laughs> sense. Like just pay more and you're going to get better employees by default. Yeah. So uh, 24 and just learn that. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. So you talked about starting as a behavioral therapist And now you've kind of transitioned over to being a financial behavioral therapist. Let's talk (laughs) about that. Like, let's talk about what are some things that you were able to bring over from being just a behavioral therapist to now coming to the finance world? One of the biggest things is, you know, I worked with... um, higher functioning ADHD and autism kids. So they were people who I could still talk to, right? I could still reason with. So I definitely got not only the patience to listen and understand what they were saying and where their mind was coming from, because that can be very difficult for some people, especially when you're working with special needs. So with my clients, I can listen to and really start to understand where something's actually coming from and really start to ask the right questions in order to get them to the thought process of, do you understand where psychologically you might be saying this, why it might be coming up? 
And another big one is that behavior therapy or that behavior change is possible. Even if it's possible for someone with autism, it's possible for someone who is spending too much and needs to change that. And that it takes a while, but that it is possible and that it is a process that people can go through and that can really make all the difference in the world. I mean, I did it my on myself first, of course, because I had to pay off all that debt. But from there, right, it's just, it makes it very clear that like, if I could help an eight-year-old with autism, go from throwing temper tantrums every day and having like some serious behavioral problems to more or less fitting into society, then I can do that with someone who just needs to spend a little bit less. Let's break that down a little bit more, right? Because uh, we've all heard that finances is 90% behavior, 10% head knowledge. And we live in a very, very polarizing society nowadays where if someone does not agree with you, they are the enemy. They are. Mm -hmm. So can you break down what is the philosophy behind that to where someone yeah. learned the skill to try to understand why people think the way they do? Yeah. So first, obviously, you have to understand the basic psychology on why people act the way that they do and what causes these behaviors. Um, so understanding that gets you a lot further. And then it's really just I mean, being able to break down your own ego and like listen to not only yourself, but what other people are saying so that you can really start to relate with them and start to understand where they're coming from. So it's a lot of just understanding first off and then breaking down your own ego, because with your own ego, you're always going to think, oh, you had the same problem as me or the same problem as this person when you need to be able to listen and really actually listen to what they're saying, because they say what they're thinking if you listen well enough. That's phenomenal. And so while you were talking, I pulled up a comment because I was having a conversation on social media between a couple acquaintances. And the conversation was centered around tipping, uh, generosity and things along there. And someone came in and me and a young lady were having a conversation and, and we weren't agreeing, but we were both, you know, I'd have my point. She'd have her point. We were, you know, talking it out like two civilized human beings. And someone came in and they were like, Look, James, I don't know why you're wasting your time trying to talk to someone that's so stupid, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, resorting to because you don't agree with someone, you just bash them or, you know, just act like they're scum of the earth. And I had to tell him and I'll, I'll read it word for word because I, it completely symbolizes what we're talking about. I said it may be frustrating talking to someone you do not agree with. But the point of the conversation is a, to attempt to change their mind by introducing more information or more perspective. All you did was say that what she was saying was nonsense without addressing any of the points she brought up, which isn't going to be productive. And so it goes back to what you're saying is like, you have to learn to understand why a person thinks the way they are. And instead of insulting the way they think, you need to either provide more information, more perspective, or be willing to change your mind in the aspects. So I wanted to bring that up because I think it's super duper important, especially when you're approaching finances, finances from the behavioral aspect. Okay, I'm sorry, Lewis. I, I had to put that out there because it was it just it related so well. So back to the uh behavioral portion of the finance world because you are an accredited behavioral finance professional. What are some of the most occurring 
mindsets you encounter when meeting new clients? Um, one of the biggest ones is that like what they have brings them status and that what they have makes them look better for whatever reason. Right. And you hear it in so many different ways because nobody ever says that. But just that like when people aren't willing to get rid of the cars, usually it is because it is a status symbol for them. They like going to work in their Mercedes and their Cadillac, right, whatever they've got. They like doing that. They like having their nicer place to live in a good area. And it really all is about them thinking that other people care about what they have when like they might care, but not for the right reason. So that's another thing that we kind of have to talk about. And another big one is just like complete financial illiteracy. They don't completely know what they're doing. They kind of just make decisions. Like I've had people say, oh, well, I'm going to refinance my house to pay off my credit cards. Like, okay, but why are we going to add more interest to the rest of your house? That doesn't totally make sense. Can we talk about why you would do that? Or I had a client come to me who had eliminated their 401k, completely pulled it to pay off their credit cards. And they were like, so I don't understand why I had this big tax bill. And I'm like, well, you had to pay a penalty on all that because you pulled it early. You probably shouldn't have done that. There was probably a better way we could have done it. So it's a lot of just that they're making decisions that they think are good decisions without any help from someone who actually understands the decisions they could make to actually situation. Okay, so let's talk about that first point for a second, which is the status thing, which is, I think, very another very, very common thing. So how do you address people who try to camouflage their status, their status symbol with safety? And I'll give an example. Someone says, oh, I want to live in the most expensive neighborhood in the city because it's the safest, right? So they're masking the status symbol of owning a very luxurious house that they probably can't afford with the disguise that it's the safest option or it's, you know, the best thing for their well-being. So a big one on that is I have to ask the right questions because you can't outright tell someone that their thinking is wrong, right? You need to guide them to the thinking that might actually benefit them. So it's about asking like, so how often do you have people over to this house that you love so much? How often do you tell people where you live? Is it closer to your work or do you drive further because of where you live? You want to live in that city and really starting to bring awareness to the fact that they are showing off what they have, even if they don't own it. Usually it's a rental, but just bringing it to light that like you are there to show off. You're there to have people over. You're there to let other people see what you can afford and what you do have when like I'm here looking at your numbers. You can't afford it. You have it, but you can't afford it. So it's very much about driving them to a place where they see, oh, maybe I am showing off with it and maybe I could be just as happy in a nice place, in the nice neighborhood even, maybe just not as big, maybe in not as nice of an area, maybe get out of the gate and just live right outside the gate, right? Like there are things that can be done that are still safe, but you have to let them see that like you want people to have to go through a gate to get to your house. You like that. That's one of the things that you enjoy. Okay. And then do you ever see kind of the same thing? Because I see it mostly with cars, right? Everybody says, <laughs> I don't want to get a used car. It's going to break down. I need to have a BMW. That way it's, you know, it costs more so I won't break down. So, so how do you even approach that conversation? Because me, I'm very blunt. I'm like a, I'm like a baseball bat where I just hit it on the head and I say, look, 
that's stupid. Your BMW is a used car. You used it. So <laughs> how how do you even approach that conversation? And, and how do you work around that kind of mindset? So I like to, because it's not necessarily, you can't have a new car. I get, you know, wanting to have a newer car that's more reliable, but I like to point out, you know, German cars are actually less reliable than, say, an American or a Japanese car. So you could go for a Toyota or a Lexus or a Honda, which is still a nice car. You can still get the fully upgraded version for like half the price, right? And I like to point out, you know, BMWs actually have a lot of issues if you really look into it, especially after that 50,000 mile point. And I like to tell them, you know, can you do some research on the actual reliability of BMWs? You're allowed to have that opinion. And if you want to keep it, please do. But can you do some research on the actual reliability of your car versus, say, a Lexus and how much it would cost you to fix the BMW versus a Lexus, right? So can we talk about, you know, you can still have a luxury car. It doesn't have to be a German expensive, hard to fix kind of car, right? And bringing it more into the perspective of actually the car you bought is one of the most expensive to upkeep. You know, it kind of it it approaches it kind of the same way that I approach snacks, right? Let's just let, <laughs> let I, I want to be very relatable, right? So, like, I always, especially, I'm a big snacker. I love to snack. And if somebody tells me, "Listen, you're not allowed to snack anymore," I'm just gonna say, "No, you're stupid. Leave me alone." <laughs> but when somebody approaches it, which I approach it all the time, is like, "No, you can snack, but here are some alternatives that are less calories or." better for your skin or, you know, whatever the case, whatever they are. And so not just immediately shutting someone down to say, no, you can't have this at all, but instead bringing up um, comparables and bringing up alternatives to please that same urge you have can be beneficial to make someone change. I love that. So the second point you brought up is complete financial illiteracy, which I 100% agree with. I think that that's a big problem. Have you seen, because before I do anything, I always like to educate myself. Before I buy something, I read reviews, watch videos and things like that. But when people do things like take out their 401k when they leave an employer or sign up for student loans where they don't even realize they have to pay it back or things like that, do you see any reason, like what is stopping people from asking for help from seeking professional help before making a big decision like that. So actually the saddest part is I have worked with clients who actually did seek professional help from a financial advisor. The problem is, and I actually started as a financial advisor in this field, a financial advisor, that's not what they're for. They're there to help you invest and all they want to do. And the only way that they make money is if they get money into investments for you and they charge you their fee or they get you into life insurance, something like that. So what's sad about it is some people, I actually know someone who had filed bankruptcy by the time they were 25, and they went in for help, but because the bankruptcy person's job was to file bankruptcy, they went ahead and did it. Even though I saw the situation, I was like, you could have gotten out of this, but you know, we're past that, right? So it's upsetting that people are in fact asking for help and that the financial industry is not fostering that help properly. Okay, you know what? You brought up a really great point. So that leads to this next question is like, let's just say I'm drowning in debt. I cannot make my payments. And a buddy says, hey, James, why don't you just file bankruptcy? And it'll get rid of the debt, blah, blah, blah. So my train of thought is, okay, if I'm going to file bankruptcy, or if I'm going to go down that path, 
who do I need to find? Who do I need to contact? And the only person that comes to mind is a bankruptcy attorney. So for example, if I'm, well, now I know, of course, but if I'm just someone who's leaving a job and I don't know anything about rolling over a 401k or, you know, taking distributions out of XYZ, how do I even figure out who to contact in times like that? I always say contact a coach before contacting any kind of advisor because the advisor is going to want to roll you into their account with their fees and they're going to want to manage it. Like finding a coach, someone who's willing to, and people don't like coaches I've found because you have to private pay them, whereas otherwise you pay fees. But the difference is when you private pay someone, they are actually motivated to help you with the best solution, not to give you whatever solution gets them paid, which I've seen quite a bit of in the financial industry. So I always say, you know, do some first, I mean, some Googling, you can figure out some very basic information on Google as well. And then if you need help from someone, try and find someone who is also a coach. There are a lot of advisor coach hybrids that I've met and finding one of them to work with is going to help you a lot more than just going down to the bank and asking an advisor. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. So Let's transition a little bit back to the behavioral aspect of it, because it's like you're, you're, you know, you're an expert in the behavioral field. So it's it's amazing to hear how you walk through some of these things. So let's deal with the frustration. Right. Do you ever get frustrated when you see someone that's hurting themselves or you're seeing someone who's going down the wrong path and you can't seem to get through to them that what they're doing is bad? Yeah, I actually, I have had to drop a client because they weren't listening at all. And it's one of those things where like, I don't want to be frustrated that you're not listening to me and you choosing not to listen to me is a behavior in and of itself, right? You're deciding not to listen to the professional that you hired, that you decided was smart enough, qualified enough to actually help you out with this situation. So I, a lot of my clients, you know, I, I won't continue working with them. I have in my contract, like I can cut you off. Because if you're not going to listen to me, I'm not going to waste my time either. So it is a big thing where I get frustrated with it, but I don't keep them around to keep me frustrated about it. Boy, Larissa <laughs> say, look, hey, snip, snip, cut them off. So, and you know what, this, see, the thing is about this behavioral thing, especially when it comes to money, is that it's it's not specific to money. I mean, it can be, for people who are on a diet, people who are exercising, if you have a personal trainer and you're just not doing anything they tell you to do, if you're not lifting the weight they're telling you to, they'll just cut you off. Or the doctor, if you're just not following their prescribed plan, they will cut you off. So let's walk through the process of like, how do you know when it's time? Like, what are the steps that you go through before you decide, okay, I just cannot help this person. And essentially, I don't want to offend you by saying this, but like, just give up on them because some people just cannot be helped. We have to accept some people cannot be helped. Right. Yeah. So I always, if they're making progress, let's say they're making progress in one area and another area they're not, that's not, I'm not going to cut them off for that because it is hard to make that behavior change. Usually it happens one thing at a time. So the person I actually did get rid of, um, I was working with them. They had six figures worth of debt. They made good money, like over $200,000 a year, but six figures in debt that they were supposed to work on. And then they go into escrow on a million dollar house. So that's why I cut them off. Okay. So basically they, they just, they were doing what they wanted to do and they just were not 
getting with the program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of people may be listening to this like, oh, Larissa, you're such a bad person. They needed your help and you abandoned them. Like what I've realized is a lot of people want help. A lot of people say they want help, but not many people are willing to do what it takes in order to uh, get the progress that they need. And again, you don't just see this in finances, but you also see this with dietitians, fitness, uh, uh, personal trainers, and just all types of different areas of your life. So, okay, let's let's talk a little bit more about your coaching, right? Let's just say, because there's there's a bunch of financial coaches out there, and it's very very hard to discern on who's a financial coach, who's fiduciary, where they have your best interest at heart, and a guru who's just trying to sell you a course or someone who just wants to get you into this mastermind and then forget about you. So, well, first, what should be people be looking for in a financial coach, and what should they be getting from someone who is a financial coach? Yeah. So I do want to actually backpedal to the fiduciary. So a fiduciary is still an investment advisor. It's just an investment advisor that's always supposed to make trades in your best interest. Doesn't mean they don't still take an outrageous fee. Doesn't mean they're entirely trustworthy. Doesn't mean they're going to coach you. So fiduciary is actually not even in the coaching realm. It's completely separate. It goes with more of the advisory side. So don't be looking for a fiduciary unless you want an advisor. If you want an advisor, a fiduciary advisor is usually better, but it's also one of those words that's kind of just thrown around. So it's not necessarily something to be looking for. As far as a coach goes, someone who's willing to talk to you beforehand, 100%. If they're not willing to have a 15, 20 minute chat with you before you buy something from them, red flag. They are not confident enough in their own ability to be able to talk to you and answer your questions and let you know what they're going to do through their coaching. Another thing is I love content marketing for the sole purpose that you can then see if someone actually knows what they're talking about. You can't really fake it in content for very long. I've found that like I lose my inspiration all the time. Someone who only knows a handful of things is only going to talk about a handful of things on their content. It's not going to be varied. It's not going to have a whole lot of information or they're going to specifically just be talking about like articles or something news related, right? And they're not going to be coming up with their own answers. They're not going to be answering questions. So really like doing your research beforehand and finding out if they're willing to talk to you, always ask, can we book a 15 minute chat? They might make you like, I make an application be filled out first. You don't pay when you fill out that application. Like you fill out the application so I can look and see, oh, you actually might be a decent candidate for me. And if you're not, I will let you know like, hey, I'm not sure that my program would be best for you. So someone who's also willing to turn down clients because they may not be the best fit is another thing to be looking out for. Because if they're not willing to turn down clients, then they're just here for the money. Okay, I want to kind of expound on that, the willing to turn down clients part, because, you know, when you say that, there's like a conflict in my head and I'll talk it through. It's like, although I realize everyone cannot be helped, I also have a part of my brain that says everybody should. You should try to help everybody, even though everybody cannot be helped, so. What are some things like when, when you say that I'm I'm sure you have things that come to mind as like of clients you would turn down. So can you break that down? Like, what are some reasons why you would turn down a client? You would turn down someone who's trying to seek financial literacy or trying to seek financial coaching. You just say, I don't think you're a great candidate. Yeah. So honestly, I've had a couple of people who applied who are very low income and I get that, you know, they have debt issues and that 
there are things that can be done. The thing is that my coaching isn't really created for someone who has lower income. I can't help you make more income. That's not what I do. And there are coaches and I always tell them like, hey, I'm just not the best fit. Like there are coaches who will help you negotiate a better salary or who can help you start a side hustle, those kinds of things. And if something like that is what's necessary and I can't take the money that is already there and help you with your debt, your investing, your saving, if it's not a behavioral issue and it's actually a you don't make enough money issue, that's just not my place and that's not where I work within. So I just try and stay in my lane, I guess is the best way to say it, where I don't want to tell someone I can help you make more money when that's just not what I do. Okay. Okay. So you know what? So yeah, you just blew my mind. I was thinking my mind was completely in a different area, but it totally makes sense now. You're not an expert in everything. None of mm -hmm. us are experts in everything. You are an expert in behavior or that is like, your corners and as you're breading your buddy, that is the best thing you do. So trying to put somebody in, into a new career, that is not your strength. Although you right. might be able to do it, you don't do it. And right. that's a hundred percent reason. I completely understand that. Like you would send them to someone like a career coach who's yes. going to figure out, okay, what are you good at? What are you interested in? And let's get you into a career that is actually going to pay you a living wage. Okay. That totally makes sense. I can't believe. Yeah. My, my mind is like <laughs> elsewhere. I was trying to pick that through, but that totally makes sense. You, you stick to your lane. you you are great at one thing. And if you know something else is going to help this person, then you're going to send them somewhere else. Totally makes mm -hmm. sense. hundred percent. So I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay. And to go back to the content marketing, I also agree 100%. That's kind of why I started this podcast, because who's going to listen to a 24-year-old talk about, like, who's going to go, what 50-year-old is going to go to a 24-year-old for about money? I don't know anything. I don't know anything in the field. And so that's why this podcast was created to not only help me learn, but also express to others that I have learned something over the years and I do provide value. And that's why I do it in this free form content to essentially build rapport is what you're talking about. And it's not right. just pay me so I can prove to you. I know what I'm talking about. Like, no, let me prove to you. I know something that's worth your time and money. Right. hundred percent agree. So Larissa, let's, can we walk through your coaching process? You know, from a, from a bird's eye view, like, you somebody comes to you and they say, Larissa, I make a decent amount of money. I just I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm overspending. Can we walk through the process that you take people through to help them not only identify their I'm going to say this loosely, identify their behavioral flaws and correct them? Yeah. So we always start because obviously I'm not just behavior. I do want to help you with the financial side as well. So it always starts with two. It's either one or one and a half hour sessions where we're going over. One is all about the money. We're going to talk about what kind of debt you have. We're going to talk about some of your money behaviors, some of what you're doing with your money and some of your goals with your money. Then we'll have another one hour session where we're talking all about the mindset. And that is really where we dig into what do you feel when you have this happen? Why do you feel like you DoorDash so often? Let's talk about the feelings, the emotions, because when it comes down to it, behavior is all about feelings and emotions. So we have to go through that hour of really being able to dig into it. And we do that initial hour because you don't get everything all in one go. But when you at least get someone's mind open to start thinking about it and start being aware of, oh, I overspent. Oh, well, what happened earlier today? How did that happen? And really going back into the chain of events that leads to the overspending. 
So then they can be more aware. And then we meet every other week and we talk about how the week went. We're setting new goals. We're answering questions and we're really working on behavior change because behavior change, it takes 90 days minimum to establish a new habit. And I actually have ADHD. So, and I work with a lot of people who do have ADHD, which means that new habits are never technically established because we are not habit forming type of people. It's just not how our brain works. So I work with them and we go through every other week. We have like a goal spreadsheet that we'll go through and we talk about, hey, did you reach this goal? Why didn't we reach this goal? Was it unrealistic? You know, did something else come up? Do we have too many goals in the mix all at one time? So really figuring out and making sure they don't get discouraged because some people will make 10 goals, right? And they'll reach two of them and they'll get discouraged when like two out of 10 is a pretty good rate, especially when you're just starting out and making sure that people are staying motivated and realizing that they are making progress and that progress is slower than they usually expect it to be. Okay. So you brought up a really, really, really good point about creating very narrow and very concise goals and not having too many of them. Um, I think that's what most people deal with because especially when you get into this personal finance space, it's a lot, right? You want to pay off debt. You want to increase your income. You want to buy a house. You want to purchase a, a rental property. You want to invest in your 401k. You want to do this, this, that. And there's a hundred different goals that you feel like you should be hitting because other people are hitting them. So do you have, like, how do you begin to narrow that down and, and pick like uh, an order of priority with your clients? So that's something where first we talk about what are all of, and that's what those two one-hour sessions are for. What are all of your main goals? So let's get the top of top of mind. Why did you come to me? Everyone has at least a couple of reasons why they came to me for help. So let's just talk about what exactly are those goals. And then we look at them and I say, okay, so here are the things that I think can be the most beneficial to you in the beginning. Because sometimes there are goals that are, you know, more beginning goals. And then there are goals that maybe should happen further along in the future. And people don't necessarily know how to put those into a timeline that actually will work for them. So we talk about the top ones. And then I usually like to pick three or four that we start with. And the three or four that we start with will usually be somewhat related. So if one of them is, I want to say, like, it's, I want to save more and I want to pay off debt. Well, those are kind of the same goal in that you want to spend less. So then we turn those both into a let's spend less type of goal. Let's think about more when you're impulse spending, why you're overspending. Let's stop using those credit cards. Those are a couple of the basic goals I'll put in place. And I like to start with something that's easy to accomplish, like put all your credit cards on lock lock them all so you can't use them and leave them at home. That is the easiest way to stop using those credit cards if that's part of your problem. Or, hey, if you are always overbuying when you go grocery shopping for no good reason, order them for pickup. Something that's easy to accomplish and that actually takes a very little amount of extra effort for them to accomplish. And then we'll put in a bigger goal, like I want to pay an extra $700 a month into debt. Okay, well, let's put that goal in. Let's say if you can save that extra $700. And if you can't, then we kind of have to figure out more of those savings, spending less goals. Yeah, I love how they're very, very specific. They're very specific goals. They're measurable and mm -hmm. they're achievable. So and I'm sorry if I feel like I'm, I'm I'm talking to you like you're a therapist, but this behavioral thing is it's phenomenal because you're you seem like a very delicate, a very uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Compassionate, a very easygoing person. And 
on the other hand, I'm a very crasp person. I'm very <laughs> blunt. I'm very straight to the point. And I understand for some people it works, some people it doesn't. So I'm sure you've had clients that want to set some very extremely ambitious goals. Like, listen, in 60 days, I like this whole, I want to buy a house in 90 days thing. I hear it constantly. And I'm like, me personally, I'm like, that's stupid. That That's a very <laughs> stupid goal because it, it, but that's just the way my brain thinks. I think right. you should not put a hard time on it. That's how you're going to end up making mistakes. Right. So how do you softly approach goals that you may think are a bit too ambitious or a bit too uh, difficult or I don't know, because you don't want to seem like a doubter. Nobody wants to be that Debbie Downer, like, oh, you can't do it. You suck. Nobody wants to be that. But we also want to be realistic. So how do you even approach that conversation with someone? I like to point out the other realities in their life that might keep it from happening in the timeline that they were hoping for. Because, right, what you just mentioned, all of those are timeline issues. And that's always what it is. It's a timeline issue. They want it to happen quicker than it realistically should. Like I had a client who wanted to start up a business and leave their nine to five within like a 60 day period. And I was like, so starting a business takes longer than that. Let's just be very real about that. You have a family to support. You need other things to be in place before you should quit your nine to five and really just bringing them back to reality. Cause it's really easy to get stuck in the hope for what's going to happen later and wanting to see your life change so quickly, but coming back to the reality of, Hey, you do have a family you have to support. You need to make sure that you have money to put into this business as you're starting up. You make sure the business is somewhere where it's bringing in consistent income. Right. And this comes for like, some people will say, Oh, well, I want to have all my debt paid off in six months. And it's kind of a lot of debt. I like to say, you know, you maybe could do that, but you might have to give up everything. And if you're not really willing to give up everything, which you shouldn't have to, because that would be kind of miserable, that may not be a realistic timeline. It is a good goal and you will pay off this debt. There's nothing saying you won't do that, but let's talk a little bit about the timeline and really bringing them back into the reality of what their situation is and what they realistically can do. Because I tell people, I'm like, hey, I ate Top Ramen and Hot Pockets for a year and I moved in with my parents. Are you willing to do that? And most of them are like, oh, well, no. <laughs> exactly. I'm shaking my head like, <laughs> shoot, I don't even like Hot Pockets like that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. So it, it, it sounds like, which is great advice. You're not, you're never going to tell someone they can't do it. And I, I, I'm a firm believer and I'm never going to tell somebody they cannot do something, but I will, but just like you reiterated, I will say the odds of you doing it in that time frame is a bit lower and you need to be okay with that. Now you might just shut me up and do it quicker. That's totally a possibility, but here are reasons why it might not happen as fast as you want. You have a child, you have this, you have that. And bringing in those real life things to kind of ground someone. So I guess the part that I struggle with the most, which I'm sure you've probably encountered, is how do you how do you pull someone back to reality to say, look, you can do this, but it won't happen as fast. How do you pull them back to reality without outright discouraging them from even trying it. For example, buying a house. If I tell someone, look, if you buy a house within 90 days, you're probably not going to get the best deal. You're probably going to rush it. And then they'll say, okay, you know, I just shouldn't buy a house at all. Yeah. So usually I just like to tell people, you know, don't be so committed to the time frame. Yes. A time frame is part of making smart goals. You want them to be achievable. But the problem is when you put a strict time frame on it, 
usually if you don't reach it in that time frame, that's when you give up. So really bringing people, it's asking the right questions and getting them to go through their own thought process, right? So then I kind of have to work with their thought process. So I ask a question, they answer it, and then I kind of need to ask the right question so that they continue along the thought process that gets them to, well, it's okay if it doesn't happen in 90 days, right? Because maybe the right house won't come on the market. Maybe you won't find anything you really like. Maybe you'll only be seeing things that have a lot of issues that you need to fix. And so maybe 90 days isn't the most realistic timeline. However, there's no reason you can't buy a house in four months, right? There's no reason that in six months it won't happen, especially if someone were to say that to me right now, I'd point out, hey, there are less houses on the market right now because nobody really wants to move in the winter. People have their kids in school, you know, whatever else is going on. People move in the spring and the summer. So keeping in mind that there may not be anything on the market that you actually like and that you should not buy a house just because you wanted to buy a house in that time frame. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I think there's a there's a very very delicate balance between being diligent in in um accomplishing a goal but not being naive in accomplishing a goal. You know, somebody else say, "You know what? Boom, I bought a house in 90 days, but it's probably the worst house you could have bought." That <laughs> although you might have successfully accomplished your goal, you did it in the worst way possible. So you have to balance that getting to my goal the way you need to get there. So I love it. So Larissa, what are some of the goals that you hope to accomplish within the next six months to a year? It could be on your business, uh, on your investing journey. Do you plan on trying to go for financial independence? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So originally I was trying to like retire early, go for financial independence, but I really do actually like my business. I like working with my clients and that I built the business specifically to be something that I would enjoy. I work from my laptop, which means that I can travel around. I want to be able to first off, get out of Idaho in the winters because I am not a fan of the snow. So being able to, even if I just had like a couple vacations planned or like I could go back to California for a little bit, hang out with my family, like being able to do those things is definitely one of the top goals. Um, I want to have $100,000 into retirement savings by the time I'm 30. So I am working very heavily on that. Because of course, if you get 100,000 in by 30 or 35, you can usually coast to retirement on there. And I can kind of focus my investments elsewhere at that point. Um, I think really just I'm building the life that I will enjoy. I'm building a life that I want to be a part of. Like I can go on vacation and stop my vacation for a couple of clients, right? There's no reason I can't do that. And especially since I enjoy what I do, that wouldn't be a problem. I don't feel burnt out. I don't feel overwhelmed. Content creation can be a little overwhelming, but the actual client side of it is pretty good. I second that. Content creation can be extremely <laughs> overwhelming. So you have to uh, you have to pace yourself. That's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. So Larissa, let's go into the final questions of the podcast. And these are the same questions that I ask every single guest that come on. Are you ready? I'm ready. Question number one. Everyone has their own definition of what it means to have financial peace. What is your definition? Not having to finance anything and knowing that anything that comes up, I'm going to be able to afford. My bills are paid and Really, for me, it's just not having to worry about how I'm going to pay for some 
something, say something breaks my house, say my car breaks down, not having to worry about those little silly nuanced things and knowing I have the emergency fund, I have the savings, I have more income coming in, all of those things are financial independence or not financial independence, financial security for me. I love it. I I 100% agree. I think when you have income coming in and you have money in the bank, there are very few things that can be devastating. They still can, (laughs) but the odds of it go down extremely. Question number two, if there are listeners out there that want to start building wealth and they have no clue where to get started, what would you tell them? So if you have any debt, obviously you want to start there because debt is usually at a pretty high. If you have, okay, if you have any debt over 5%, if it's under 5%, like a lot of people have like car notes that are a couple hundred bucks a month, like you don't have to pay those off early or like your home. I never recommend paying off a home early because the interest rate in reality is low compared to say a 25% credit card. If you have credit card debt or even student loan debt that is going to continue to accrue interest, I always say Try and get some focus on that first. Make sure you have your immediate emergency savings. I don't tell people, especially when they're in debt, to try and save three to six months emergency savings. That's overwhelming. That's unrealistic. It's not something we can do, but you can save enough. So if your dog has to go to the vet or your car breaks down, that you can cover that with cash. So try and get that in place and make sure that that debt is getting paid down. And then from there, I you know you don't have to finish paying off your debt before you start investing, but start looking at your retirement options. If your employer offers a 401k with a match, take the match, right? Start getting something in there and just making those little changes along the way that will keep you going in the right direction because you're not gonna get there as quickly as you hope, but if you're going in the right direction, you're already ahead of probably most of your peers. Yep. It doesn't matter the pace at which you get there as long as you continue striving to get there. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree. Question number three, if there's one thing you could advise everyone to avoid doing to build wealth, what would that be? Using credit cards. (laughs) Some people do think credit cards will help them get ahead because they're like, oh, well, I need credit. Like you need credit. That is true. You do not need revolving credit that you always keep. You should be using your credit card like a debit card. If you don't have the impulse control for that, then make sure you're using your credit card for like a purchase a month so that you can still use it, but don't have to use it too much. You know, it's all about (laughs) really keeping things in perspective is the biggest thing when it comes to just anything financial. Yeah, Larissa, you're not going to take my credit card away. All right, I pay it every (laughs) single week. You're not going to take my credit card. No, but I 100% agree. I think... I think every single tool, if used properly, can be beneficial, even something like a credit card. But if you use a credit card wrong, it's going to hurt you. If you use a hammer wrong, it's going to hurt you. So (laughs) use these tools properly and do not use these tools as they are intended in all cases, i.e. credit cards, because their intended use is not the right use. Get that out of your head. Question number four. If there's someone out there that doesn't believe they can reach financial peace due to their age, race, religion, sexual orientation, et cetera, what would you say to change their mind? Well, first off, if they truly believe that, then they are right because they're going to, right? You are completely running off your subconscious. So if your subconscious believes, oh, well, this is holding me back. Well, that is going to hold you back because you're going to make sure it does hold you back because that's what's safe for you in your subconscious. So really telling people like, hey, 
it might be harder. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. It doesn't mean that it's not achievable. You need to instead start asking yourself, well, how can I actually reach that goal? What are the things that are available to me? What are the privileges I do have? Because everyone has some privileges, whether you're paying attention to them or not. Everyone has a couple that they can access, that they can use. And I'd like to bring it back to perspective of, hey, I want you to pay attention to the privileges you do currently have at your disposal. If you have a job, that is a privilege, right? Especially if you have a good paying job, that is a privilege. So let's start using these and start changing that mindset to how can I actually do this? What are the goals that need to be in place for my goals to happen? Yeah, I think what you just said is extremely underrated. Because even like if we look at the grand scheme of things, even living in somewhere like America, this is a privilege. You're going to be able to do things here that people in other countries could absolutely never even imagine. So it's not just what's going on in your day to day, whether it's your physical appearance or the job you have, or whatever. But look at where you live. I think that's the biggest at the, you know what? I'm not going to get on my salt box, <laughs> but listen, that's one of them where I'm like, listen, if you live in America, there's almost no excuse. So, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Larissa. Oh God, this has been such a deep dive into the behavior of money and just the people's behavior in general. And I think you've brought on some tools that are not only going to help people question themselves, but it's also going to help people question their loved ones. Like, Hey, you know, why'd you make this purchase and come at them from a place of curiosity and not a place of judgment. So mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate you going on. But before you go, Larissa, where can people find out more about you? I am on Instagram and TikTok as at worried to wealthy. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want to go connect there, I actively post content to each of the platforms. Um, I have a website. It's it's being redone right now, but worriedtowealthy.com. It's going to be better in the next couple of months, I promise, but it's there for now. <laughs> Awesome. And you guys are not going to have to go very far. I'm going to have all of Larissa's social media website and all that link down in the show notes below where you guys can find it and reach out to her. She is awesome. Larissa, I really, really, really appreciate you coming on, sharing your journey up to this point and sharing all the great tips to kind of get people curious and get people on the right track to not only financial security, but also financial independence. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on and getting to share this knowledge and some of these tips with everyone. And I hope someone learned something and that I'm helping someone out here. I guarantee there's <laughs> plenty of people are going to learn. But Larissa, I hope you have a blessed rest of your day. We will catch you later. Yeah, you too. Man, oh man, God, that was such a great conversation. I really hope that you guys got a bunch of nuggets from the conversation me and Larissa had. I mean, she went through a debt payoff journey herself with over $60,000 in debt. And then she explains how not only they got out of debt, but now she helps other people get out of debt or even manage debt. So I hope you guys got some tools on if you have people you love in your life, like maybe children or parents or even coworkers, peers that you want to have a successful financial future, maybe you can approach them with these conversation techniques and maybe you can help them understand the behavior of personal finance. Why are you spending so much money? What brings you joy? How can we substitute that joy for maybe spending a little bit less? 
I really hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. It was so amazing. I can't wait to have Larissa on in the future to share even more. With that being said, guys, if you guys want to contact Larissa, I have all of her contact information down in the show notes below. And if you guys want to contact me, you know all of my social media is down in the show notes below. Also, you can shoot over a message. I respond to all of my messages personally. If you guys want to schedule a one-on-one consultation, let me know. That's down in the show notes. You guys can find it on my website. But I'm going to get up out of here. It's been a long day. I'm your host, James Bowman, and always remember, you're only as secure as your ability to perform, so spend your life accumulating assets that can perform for you. Later, guys.